Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff and I am enjoying regular 12 mile bike rides this summer. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am enjoying spending most of my weekends boarding around a campsite. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Thursday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Oatmeal Raisin Cookie Imperial Stout from The Brewery, and that's B-R-U-E-R-Y. These are larger cans. They are labeled exactly one pint, which I appreciate their consistency with our brand. Nice dark coloration to the head. I'm not getting much, though, as far as just volume. I had oatmeal from lunch. I hope this isn't too oatmeal-y. I like oatmeal stouts, so I can't imagine a world where this is over-oatmealed. All right. Well, we'll tell you about it at the end. What are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports, or PBIS, is a framework being adopted by many schools, and some claim it can integrate trauma-informed pedagogies. However, we read scholarship that shows how PBIS is fundamentally incompatible with trauma-informed education. Later, we discuss a large-scale reciprocal reading study with significant impacts for some students is still not effective for every student. How should this shape our approach to implementing research-informed reading instruction? Let's get started. For our first segment, we read Unsnarling, PBIS, and Trauma-Informed Education. This was written by Rhiannon Kim and Alex Vinette. Uh, tell me about your choice not reading their middle name. Uh, because uh, I had a rare opportunity uh, to see Alex Vinette give a webinar where she said her own name and she called herself Alex Vinette in that webinar. This was published in Urban Education in 2023. I don't know that we've ever talked about PBIS, Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports, on this show. I don't think so. We've discussed its close cousin and offshoot MTSS. This this is a type of MTSS is how they brand is how I understand that they brand PBIS. Uh, so even though we haven't ever done a, an episode on PBIS, it's something that gets a lot of discussion in the kinds of academic social circles that I like to follow and occasionally participate in, but mostly just follow. Uh, and PBIS in particular is something that elicits a lot of strong reactions. Uh, I've seen plenty of people who strongly identify part of their intellectual identity as being either in favor of or against the implementation of PBIS. And so when I saw this paper come across my feed, when I became aware of this paper, I thought it was an exciting opportunity for me to learn more about some of the critiques of PBIS that I have seen in passing, but haven't been able to dive into very deeply, especially in the context of trauma-informed education, which is something that I, um, uh, for which I advocate and something that I think that is important in lots of contexts. And so being able to kind of better understand PBIS and be able to learn more about trauma-informed education and their incompatibility with one another, which is something that I expected but did not fully understand prior to this paper. All of that made this a very compelling choice for me. This, this paper is not an empirical paper. This paper is an argument. They call it a, cl a close critical read of um, 
some PBIS tenants as promoted by the PBIS.org organization. I said not empirical because I decided it wasn't empirical early on in my read. But I feel like that does raise the philosophical question of whether qualitative data is empirical. And my opinion on that is yes. Well, I don't. Okay. But I don't know that they, I mean, did they collect data? They, someone like an organization said, this is what we're about. And they critiqued. They analyzed a defined body of, of material taken from their research subject and analyze it in a systemic way. Well, even they said they didn't code anything. Uh, I don't think that coding is necessary for the declaration of empiricism. Um, And this is a philosophy of, of this is a philosophy of research type conversation that is, I think beyond the scope of this show, but um, that's interesting. I think I'm walking back my declaration. This is not an empirical paper because of where I sit in a philosophy of data kind of a position. So uh, they did, as you said, as you were starting to explain, uh, they are analyzing some of the publicly facing materials from the PBIS, Positive Behavioral Intervention and Supports Organization, one of the primary advocates of this approach to school discipline. Um, and and as you said, said, compared that to some of the tenets of trauma-informed education. Uh, and they found conflict. That is really the key, that if the priorities identified and discussed in a PBIS system, positive behavior intervention and supports system uh, are followed as as communicated, then there's some intrinsic tension between following those uh, those those methods and uh, being responsive to trauma. Uh, I really I liked a lot of things about this paper. I thought it was a if I wasn't already coming in with an inclination to be convinced, I would have found it very convincing. I, uh, I liked the way that they wrote, the way that they um, connected the relevant literature. There's a lot of great things. I actually, I emailed this paper to multiple people in my professional network as an exemplar of various components of how we go about doing scholarship just during the course of my read. So I like this paper a lot. Uh, and at the same time, I don't know that I'm going to have a whole lot to say about it, because this paper is mostly PBIS is antithetical to some fundamental philosophical positions that I take and that I think a lot of educators would um, adopt for themselves as professionals. And so we shouldn't be doing PBIS. And this is a long, thorough explanation of why that is. But ultimately, for me, the should is stop doing PBIS. And we can discuss a little bit of what that looks like and why that is. But ultimately, the should is just don't. Uh, so yeah, let's get to as uh, let's, let's streamline the definition of these two uh, approaches. So positive behavior, interventions and supports, that system is a th- describes three tiers of instruction and interaction. Tier one would be your vanilla classroom experience, what you plan, what you intend for the entire classroom to consume and experience. That's your baseline, what you expect to do in the classroom. 
Uh, and that can be extended to what we expect to do in the building as well. Um, so it might just not, it might not be like, what's the routines you have for your classroom and what are the experiences that your students have in the classroom? But it could also be, what are the routines that we have in the hallways and what do we experience have in the hallways and what are the routines that we have in the, in the, in the cafeteria and what, 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 do, what do we expect in the cafeteria? So we establish these tier one, like here's the baseline expectations for what we do and how we do it. And then you're going to have students who, uh, who are uh, not, and I'm going to use these quotes here, successful in the uh, participation in those tier one expectations and those tier one behaviors. And so you have tier two. This would be your interventions. This would be your, okay, everybody does this, and we're going to have these extra one-on-one -on -one sessions with this person, or we're going to do these other things here for this other person. Um, and... Uh, these uh, in the the PBIS system, the positive behavior is about behavioral reinforcement. Like we said, behaviorism is the tool we are using. So we are bribing them to do good things or incentivizing them with rewards to do good things. And then we are disincentivizing behavior that is unwanted or problematic. And those are uh, operationalized words. Um, with, with consequences, punishments, when they're not doing the things we want or they're doing the things that we do not want. Uh, and so uh, those, those would get more intense for tier two. And then tier three are the, the perhaps outliers. Things are not working at all. What do we do for these very extreme cases of students where things are not working? That is the, PBS, the general framework of the PBS approach. And this idea of weaponizing access to resources, access to praise, access to feedback, access to attention, um, withholding access to resources or esteem or recognition is all very coercive. And there's a, there's a quote in, in the paper that I appreciated seeing where specifically when they put this in comparison to trauma-informed education, recognizing that many people who are affected by trauma are viewing rewards and consequences from a lens based on their past experience where rewards and consequences are, are derived from an adult's mood rather than anything directly related to their choices, their behaviors, the things that they have control over, because that's that's very often the source of the trauma. Like that's, that's what has in fact happened is if somebody's abusive, that's, that's, that's something that is in their locus of control affecting the student. And so even within a framework where we, where somebody would agree that they want to set up incentive structures to drive normative behaviors, which is not a, a something I'm willing to stipulate even from a philosophical standpoint, even in that world, the trauma-informed lens on that says people who are dealing with substantial trauma in their lived experience understand incentive structures differently because of the impact of trauma in their lives. And so it's fundamentally, it's fundamentally incompatible with one another, which is, I think, again, what the argument of these, what the, I think is the argument of these authors. So there are five components of trauma-informed uh, education that are sort of the pillars here. Uh, and they, they had a sixth, which, which I have no, I, I did not know about, but um, uh, was new to me. The, the five that I, the original five that I'm familiar with, uh, safety, trust, choice, collaboration, and empowerment. And that's 
safety for the student. So the teacher working to create an environment where the students feel safe, trust between the teachers and the students, and then uh, grow an extension, a trust between the students and each other, allowing students, allowing and respecting student choices, allowing opportunities for collaboration authentically, which means individuals have feedback that is responded to by other members in the group, which means you as a teacher are responding to your students and the, te- the students are responding to you. And then empowerment where they feel comfortable and confident exercising those choices and those collaborations and, and making, uh, exerting themselves in the classroom to, to change that classroom. And then there was another acknowledgement about cultural sensitivity uh, in the classroom. So those, that framework is clearly very different one. Well, this is what you do to everybody. And this is what you do to the 15% that are different. And this is what you do to the 5% that are even more different. Like those, I mean, those are holistically different approaches to what a teacher decides to do in a classroom. So the two frameworks are very different. But there is, interestingly, a lot of um, rhetoric in the PBIS world that says, hey, PBIS is is doing this because it's responsive instruction. So if we say something strange in our students, then we're going to go in and do something to help them handle that. And so we are going to address their situation. And the problem is in the uh, decision about seeing something strange in the students. That's where the issue is. And that, I think, from a rhetorical standpoint, is something that's really glaring in a lot of the PBIS material that they analyze and that, that the PBIS advocates and organization present to the world. And we've even read it into the record in this conversation so far where you see PBIS advocates, the PBIS organization, their use of passive voice to mask the origins of where definitions of normal lie and where responsibility for implementation of rewards and punishment lies is a really critical piece of how they obscure the hierarchical power structures that PBIS demands of implementers. And this was a key piece for my learning early on is There is an enormous number of people, schools, organizations, districts, implementing PBIS. I did not realize before reading this paper just how extensive PBIS adoption has been. I did not appreciate that, the reality of that. 27,000 schools in the United States alone, where there might be a rule that says, well, if a student is doing this thing, that the PBIS system created by some disembodied agent, declares that that's not a normative behavior and is something to be punished. And then the teacher decides when and how to implement that rule. And that's something that that PBIS largely does not take responsibility for. And so the reality is the teacher says, okay, well, this multiply marginalized student, when they do something that I perceive to be in this category, I will I will wield the system to punish them. And we read that paper. Those students that don't look like them or experience the world like them, uh, teachers are more likely to misinterpret their behaviors as harmful or disruptive or counterproductive. And so knowing that that is true and then having the teacher be the 
the um, arbiter of what is and is not acceptable in the classroom and then say, well, you did this thing. I got to kick you up to tier two. Um, it, it, it's kind of like PBIS believes that it's not um, problematic because it doesn't see color or, or, you know, it's kind of like this. We don't acknowledge student diversity in learning and cultural experience. So we don't have to make differences in consequences or responses to students based on learning or, or, or cultural experiences. Um, when I was reading this paper, it was reminded me of a story of something that happened in my classroom. Um, and it's a really, it's probably an extreme example, but it, but it kind of addresses some of the issues. The PBS, following PBS as intended as written, leads to what they described three systemic problems. Those were, and you mentioned one of them already, but they are um, hyper surveillance, hyper labeling, and hyper punishment. And so those are essentially disproportionate uh, discriminatory uh, uh, surveillance, which leads to additional labels, which leads to othering the student, which then leads to uh, discriminatory um, social consequences in the classroom. Those things are problems. Those are problems. They are, they are discrimination problems in education. This is not a new mystery. And if we now have evidence to show that this contributes to that, then this is the wrong direction and we should reconsider where we're going. But this reminded me of a story in my classroom where one of my, and, and oh gosh, there's just a lot here. Um, they, um, they, you know, uh, I, I have no problem with the idea that uh, when behavior alone is considered the ultimate outcome, behaviorism can be used as a club to hit students until they comply. Yeah, I have no problem with that. But behavioral learning theory is still a valuable classroom stu tool. Students, people, people, humans, living things respond to stimuli. And so being a teacher and recognizing that your students are responding to the stimuli that you give them. And if they're not responding in the way that you feel is healthy, then you need to reconsider the stimuli you are giving them as opposed to reconsidering the student's role in your classroom. And, and that's where the, I would say the healthier perspective of behavioral learning theory comes into play. And a story that kind of illustrates this is uh, in my classroom, I like my attention getter, which is a behavior that I use. It's a stimuli I create in order to influence student behavior to draw their attention back to some central focus, is I clap my hands, I, I put my hands in the air, I clap them and I say, my dear students, and I'm kind of talking over whatever classroom din is occurring at the time. Students stop what they're doing and they look at me and they stop talking. But I was doing that in a classroom and after I would do that, a student would moan. And that moaning behavior caused other students to like giggle laugh. This is in a ninth grade science classroom. And then they would maybe joke about that or mimic that or get off topic. And what was happening is I had in that classroom, uh, a student on the spectrum who responded to sounds differently and experienced them differently than other students in the classroom. And there was that right there is a decision point. There's a lot of things that could have been done at that moment. I could have said that that is an unwanted behavior because it's not what I want to happen in my classroom. And so what can we do with this student? Uh, does he need to be removed from the classroom? And just today, just today on the car ride to this studio, because we're, we're in, we're in Studio North audience. Uh, um, 
I heard a story about a kid in Indiana who spent 23 hours over two weeks in isolation. He was a student on the spectrum, and that was that school's response to his unwanted behaviors. 23 hours over the course of two weeks, it's basically three and a half hours a day in a total isolated room where he did not have the power to leave the room, right? Now, I... I I can't imagine myself making that choice, but I could imagine myself saying that's an unwanted behavior. We're going to do this thing where we're going to respond to that unwanted behavior by treating this student differently and, 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 and decreasing their ability to communicate in the room. That is, that is not what I did. I went a different way. Um, recognizing that this student experiences um, sounds differently, um, uh, we said, well, what, what am I going to do about this? And one of my students in the classroom who was on the dance team says, well, you could do jazz hands and then everybody could do jazz hands until everybody's listening to you. And I said, that's great. So I started using a jazz. I would put my hands up in the air and I would shake them back and forth. Uh, and then kids would do that. And there was no loud noises. There was no moaning. Everybody was doing the behavior that I was hoping to get at, which was uh, we're going to focus now on this before I, I let you go back and work together. Uh, and then that student was got to participate in my classroom as everyone else did uh, without me changing the student. I changed my behavior for my classroom. And uh, that was an example of uh, me collaborating with my students because that idea came from the students. Um, uh, they were empowered to change the classroom environment. Uh, that student was invited to continue to participate with us. We were making this uh, environment safer because it wasn't going to have threatening sounds for of my students, um, which increased, I believe, the trust between all of us in the classroom. Because once you model that you respect the needs of one student, other students see that and can feel that their needs are likely going to be respected as well in that classroom. So that's not a PBIS story, but that's, an, that's I think, a trauma-informed education story an essential piece of trauma-informed education is to not cause trauma like that's literally in this paper don't cause or recause trauma right and when this particular signal is causing trauma for a student stop doing that signal i'm the one that needs to change and that's what's in the concluding sections of their paper is whose responsibility is this what do we do about this and the authors point out that so much of this is about changing adults rather than changing students to be responsive. And what I, I love so many things about that story, Mr. Woodruff. This whole day is justified by me getting to listen to that story because I didn't know I didn't know anything about that story prior to this afternoon. But some of the things that I love about that is modeling the sense of community because in that story, you were seeking a, a shared behavior, but it wasn't assumed it wasn't assumed that we all do the same thing all the time. There's a piece of responsiveness that is supporting variability in what we do. You can do that thing and you can do this other thing because we're all pursuing a shared goal and that makes sense. But then there are times where we as a community want to be doing this thing together and we are only a community if we are we. And so this, this mechanism of doing so is excluding somebody. We as a community don't want to exclude people. Let us change the community so that we're all included. And all of those pieces of community-minded shared responsibility without ever, no part of that story suggested that to be a member of the community, we all have to be the same. Defining what are the things that we share, what are the things that we do together, and what are the things that make us different, that make us that make us unique, and 
make us all pursue what we are doing in different ways. And all of that can coexist, but it all has to coexist outside of a normative paradigm. I don't watch Ted Lasso, but everybody talks about him. So every, I'm, I'm familiar with the be curious, not judgmental um, statement. And I think if, if there's some teacher shoulds, I think that's one of them because we know we have biases. So when we jump to conclusions about what the student behavior is about, and then we escalate to a, a disciplinary situation because one of the things that they looked at in this paper is the uh, number of discipline referrals written for different students under different circumstances. Um, if we jump to conclusions about the meaning behind their behavior and then we write referrals, we are inviting ourselves to allow that bias to influence our behavior. Whereas if instead we're like, my student is moaning after I clap, why is he doing that? Or, or any number of other things. This student isn't writing their paper when other students are writing their paper. Why aren't they writing their paper? Like the approach to what, what, is, what can I learn about my students because of this behavior, as opposed to that behavior is wrong, we need to curtail it. Well, maybe you do need to curtail it. It's not that behaviorism, strictly speak, like strictly, is not something you should do. But if it is the only tool that you use, you are missing so much about learning, and you are dehumanizing the person. So, why are they doing what they're doing? Yeah, and I appreciate that. I also don't watch Ted Lasso, so no comment on that. But there is something that I have said for for years now in different periods of my life that I think is was my ignorant arrival at a similar position of lead with questions. And that's a phrase that I have said regularly. Lead with questions, which is the same idea. In fact, literally for this episode, in the like at the beginning of taping, you, Lawrence Woodruff, made a decision I didn't expect. And I could have said, follow our show rules for how we do this. And I didn't. What I did was tell me about that choice. And I learned something because I was the one who didn't know things about that scenario. And so I think this idea of lead with questions, because the teacher and the administrator and the para and the everybody in that school ecosystem, we are all actors. And PBIS, so much of it is built around obscuring and rendering invisible the responsibility of everybody else who is not a student so that we can pretend there's this objectivity around it, which is not true. We are all in community when we're in a school. Like it or not, you're a member of the community. And so leading with questions and recognizing that very often we must change ourselves. And sometimes not. Sometimes we'll prompt changes in others. But leading with questions so that we can not assume what the answer is prior to understanding why things are happening, I think, is something that is consistent with trauma-informed education. And PBIS is not. I am, I am now, I am no longer roughly of the opinion that PBIS is troubling or problematic. I am now firmly, I am firmly convinced we should not be using PBIS in classrooms full stop. We're in this together.
For our second segment, we read Comparing the Effectiveness of Two Reciprocal Reading Comprehension Interventions for Primary School Pupils in Disadvantaged Schools. This was written by Liam O'Hare, Patrick Stark, Maria Cockerell, Katrina Lloyd, Sheila McConnellog, Ideen Gilday, Abby Biggert, Kristen Bauer, and Paul Connolly. This was published in the British Journal of Educational Psychology in 2023. One of the reasons that I queued this paper was I really like the British Journal of Educational Psychology. We read stuff from this journal fairly regularly, um, and it's pretty consistently pretty good. Uh, so I, I, that, I don't mean that to sound like I'm surprised. It's just they are accruing a reputation in my head of a lot of the stuff that they put in there is is pretty high quality stuff. So when I saw they had new material out, I was excited about it. And I also noticed uh, this has some pretty large scale reading interventions. And I know that you are a reading researcher. And so being able to have more material related to impacts of reading interventions, that was compelling to me. So uh, I was excited to read it. I'm glad I read it. I can't wait to talk about it. This paper is really reporting out a couple of pretty large scale studies. Um, they did fancy statistics. They did, it's a big randomized, a uh, couple of randomized trials where they were working with thousands of students across something like 150 schools in the United Kingdom, looking at the impact of two very similar with key differences, uh, reading interventions. So here is a, a curriculum or a, um, a set of materials that we're going to train teachers to use to help students read better. And we're going to look at the impacts of those things. And the key difference between those two large-scale interventions was one of them is working with younger students, and they're looking at this intervention where they're, they're doing reciprocal reading with the students for 26 weeks. And the other group, which is also over a thousand students, where they're doing the same reciprocal reading based on the same amount of professional development, but they're doing it as a more targeted process, specifically focusing the reciprocal reading strategies for students who, by some indicator, show that they are in need of additional reading supports. Uh, specifically, and it matters, uh, these the targeted students were students who have competent decoding skills so they can turn the words into sounds and identify the words from the symbols, but low comprehension skills. That's a very particular place in the reading learning curve where you're, you're past the, the, the um, it's all Greek to me, uh, I don't understand what these symbols mean, and I have to really work really hard to turn the symbols into sounds to make words in my head. You're past that phase, but you're not at the fluency. This is a sentence of ideas that creates this image or sensation of understanding in my head. You're in this middle place where you're pivoting. And those were the students that they were targeting, as opposed to the, the first treatment, which was whole class. And I'm going to put the headline up front. The impact that they saw was significant. I'm going to even call it substantial for the targeted group. When schools specifically targeted this reciprocal reading strategy to students who were identified in the way you've described as needing that additional support, they saw significant improvements on the standardized reading assessments that they were evaluating, specifically related to comprehension and more general overall reading. 
significant improvements. And they saw a substantially higher level of impact for the subgroup of students they identified as disadvantaged. And that is their use of the word disadvantaged. When they looked at the groups of students who um, did this reciprocal reading thing across the entire class, so everybody just does it, they didn't find any impacts at all. And I got to underscore, just I didn't get deep into their methodology, but looking at their measurements, when I say they didn't find significant impacts, I mean definitively. This isn't like they just barely failed to meet their thresholds of significance. They, for real, no impact of the intervention. So it was it only showed any meaningful impact with when it was targeted to the students who needed it. Uh they didn't spend a lot of time with this, but the the reading, the comprehension reading strategy that they um, put down, or that they um, they put down, the comprehensive reading strategy that they taught the students was sort of four steps to reading. So, assuming you can turn the the letters into words, you 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 know how to read the words. When it comes to determining what they mean, one, you look at like major head major headings and clues to predict what will happen, clarify new or unfamiliar words. So you have to identify what you don't know. This is a word I don't know. What does that mean? Uh, ask questions about the text. Okay. So what's going on? What does it mean? What will, you know, what will happen and uh, summarize what has been read. Those were the four steps. Those were, that was the, that's what the lessons were about. And one of the things that I, that I like, I like it because it reinforces my existing understandings is a big piece of this reciprocal reading idea, which you've, you've described to some extent already, is that it, it was about the teacher modeling what those four steps look like. Here is how I go about predicting what I'm going to see. Here's what I'm thinking about. Here's what it makes me wonder as I start to prepare. Here are the questions that I have. Here's what I'm asking about what I'm seeing. Here's, here's the words that's drawing my attention where I'm Hierarchical. I don't know that word. I'm going to go look that word up. Oh, I totally do. Yeah, yeah. Those sorts of things, like doing all of that modeling and then allowing students to practice doing those same things during the lesson time uh, with their own reading materials. And one of the things that I particularly liked was I made a connection in my head to something that I don't know if it was you and I that talked about it on tape or we just talked about it in our lives, but the impact of reading out loud and it made me think of the same thing because they emphasize at several points, although it was in passing, it is in the paper where they talk about the importance of having time for student talk. And I immediately mapped that to some of the impacts of reading out loud. And it made me wonder how much of this is specific to the curriculum and how much of this is just the curriculum's implementation of opportunities to vocalize what I'm reading and how I'm reading it. And I mean, it, we don't have to draw a line. They're both good. Okay. Um, but it was it was neat to see that overlap with some of the things we've talked about before. Uh, now let's also talk about the age groups. Um, the British system calls kindergarten year one, and then we call what we call first grade. They call year two. So it's it's a weird shift because we put a K in there. But um, uh, essentially, these are seven, eight, and nine year olds. I recently read, and by recently I mean this last semester, read that this transition from decoding to uh, there's this concept of learning to read and then reading to learn, and there's this inflection point, and in the United States we say that 
approximates third grade. And that's consistent, incidentally, with what they're reporting here. And it's not... It, no, it's not incidentally consistent with what they're reporting here. What they're reporting here is consistent with the research base about learning because that's what they do. They report on education reading research. So, of course, it's consistent. Uh, and so they're looking at kids in that window and saying, okay, do we know that kids are beginning to have competency with decoding, so they don't have to use a lot of working memory decoding. They're able to actually move through that quite quickly. They've got a lot of working memory space available for comprehension, so let's start doing some comprehension supports. And they do. Uh, and it turns out those targeted supports directly for the kids who are struggling with comprehension are more effective than the class-wide instruction. That's and those students defined as disadvantage also benefit more from the targeted instruction. The group-wide implementation not just is not as good as, it, it did not have an impact. Yeah. The group-wide implementation did not have an impact. And we haven't said it to this point, but I'm going to say it out loud now. Because I feel like the authors imply some meaning around these studies and the broader, highly charged, highly politicized science of reading. I'm going to call it a debate. It, it's not my lane. I, I, I have yet to invest in really understanding any of that. But they seem to imply that there's some connection there. And so in their conclusion, at the end of their abstract, they sort of do some head nods to even this implementation that is highly supported by science, like ours, the authors, like the authors, does not universally have an impact. So let us recognize that even though this is really promising, when these kinds of interventions are targeted to the students who need them, it's not something we can just blanket apply to everybody. So thinking about who needs what, and that's a spot where I literally wrote in my notes, put this paper in conversation with our first segment, because this is a really important piece of who is labeled as disadvantaged, who is labeled as targeted. And that's, I think, an important connection here of even if we think about, okay, let's talk about who is getting supported. It could, it, I can easily, quickly imagine somebody who, if they're not wanting to put much energy or much thought into this, would say, okay, this intervention's a tier one support now. And we're getting into all of the same problems of moving into these very hierarchical, yeah. very um, problematic power dynamics kinds of systems. And the authors, I appreciate, acknowledge at several points, that's not what, that's not what, I don't think it's what they're striving to advocate for. And so thinking about how do we provide what students need without inappropriately labeling or tracking or siloing or separating students. And they got that data. Apparently, that they mentioned some acronym, which is a national database for students that identifies them. And so they had student ID numbers and were told or were able to look up those numbers and identify at the national level, have we identified this student as, quote, disadvantaged or not? So that there is some criteria used to define that. Uh, it's quite possible that if that if Ralph and I were British, we would we would already know all of that in material, but I didn't do the work to disambiguate those terms. So I don't know what the defining criteria of that is. So uh, the only person preventing me from knowing more at this juncture is myself. 
one of the things that the authors draw out as a big takeaway for those of you who are steeped in some of the research around reading is they describe in their discussion that one of the prevailing explanations for differences of impact is what, what's called dosage. So are there students who are literally getting more time, more exposure to the kinds of supports that different teachers or researchers are providing? Yeah, both over 1,700, less than 1,800 for both groups, uh, which was well above the um, reciprocal reading strategist organization that created that strategy well above their prescription, since we're using medical terms, their prescription for how much time they need in a school year to do it. So it was, you know, you need this, you need 100% of your daily vitamin C. Well, we're going to give you some cranberry juice. You're going to get 2000% of this. We are over, every group is overflowing with vitamin C yeah. in this if, situation. If vitamin C matters, it's going to matter here because yes. we gave you plenty. We gave you plenty. done with that segment so how was the beer the beer i'll tell you what mr woodruff this is after a, a quite a season of different kinds of beers varietals flavors they have this thing in common but i'll tell you what i said at the beginning i like oatmeal stouts and like i do that's real but they're not like they don't they don't cure all ills but i liked this beer and you can taste the cinnamon in it you can taste a little bit of like that that sweetie spiciness at the end of the oatmeal the beginning uh what did i write i wrote um uh i wrote uh bitter on the bottom and sweet on top that's what i wrote when i when uh because when you smell it it smells sweet to begin with then you have it in your mouth the bitter hits your tongue and then you swallow that and then what's left on top is this nice airy kind of refreshing aftertaste which makes you feel good about what just happened um I liked it. I liked it too. Yeah, it's uh, I, I was moving through it fairly quickly. I slowed down in the second in the second segment. Um, if anything is going to hit me, it's the acidity because it is. It's I mean, eight percent is not it's not child's play, and so um, I recognize that like if I drank these all night, I would start to regret it. Um, but as far as like flavor agreeability, things that I enjoy, it's there. This is this is this is good. It's not heavy on the sweet. The sweet rounds out the flavors of this with that hey think that was a great beer hey what do we do now cheers uh, yeah thanks for listening everybody this is our last regular episode of the season we hope that you have found these papers valuable i know that i have as we go into our recap and then get ready for the next school year that's always getting closer please remember to reach out let us know what kinds of things would be useful to you on two pint plc because i want to know what's important to you and how we can help and I want to pursue growth. As we do so, discuss research and struggle well.